Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Why don't we? Uh, why don't we start? We lead off with the oil and gas stuff. The price of oil uh, benefited from an OPEC meeting um, that uh, was half an hour virtual, uh, uh, and no change in production quotas. Brent uh, touched seventy, over seventy. WTI is three or four dollars less. Um, still an enormous amount of backwardation in the market. So, you know, $68 current month, I don't know what your 23 price is, 53 or 54 or something. It's very interesting for, if you're a producer, do you want to deal with that much backwardation in, uh, in, uh, as compared to doing less hedging? Um, I think if you're a producer and your debt is down under one times cash flow, you're definitely thinking about um, being go, you know, waiting, waiting to do your hedging, or maybe use collars, or do something where you're not committing yourself to that big, uh, that much lower price, uh, that backwardated price. Uh, in natural gas, it's continued to be pretty strong. Um, LNG is especially impressive. JKM. Uh, which is Japan, Korea, China, an index that Platts keeps is uh, like $11. Uh, the JCAM price generally trades uh, a buck and a half or $2 more than the price in Europe. Um, but the price in Europe has been pretty strong as well. Um, certainly helps LNG exports, um, which are running more or less at main plate capacity around 11 Bs a day. I think it also helps uh, advance the projects that are being constructed. Uh, I think it's train six at uh, Chenier's Sabine Pass, train three at Sabine's uh, uh, Corpus Christi, I mean, uh, Chenier's Corpus Christi um, uh, operation. Um, the uh, helps venture global work a little quicker to get into business. Um, totally surprised. The price was like $5, $4, $5 last July. I went as high as 30 in January. That was a surprise, but, you know, it is volatile. Um, but to have it be $11, you know, when it, when it started declining in March, it got down as low as 5 or 6 To have it bounce to $11, kind of in the season with less demand in the summer, really surprising. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> in terms of the equities, um, eh, with consolidation, there are fewer companies to invest in. I mean, Cabot and Simrex are going to merge. They'll take two out. Um, the uh, We just announced the merger of Indigo into... Uh, Southwestern Indigo might have been an independent private company, but that won't happen now. Uh, it looked like fine, only with way less debt and somewhat more production. Um, <laughs> there may be a scarcity of uh, companies, public companies to buy. Um, 
there is this expectation in oil that uh, the majors plus the large state-owned companies, Rosneft and Saudi Ramco, will be committing less of their cash flow, that, um, that in effect, Rosneft and Saudi Ramco will be kind of as capital-constrained as, say, U.S. companies, EOG or or Pioneer, uh, that the major companies will Exxon lost two board seats to a $200 million partnership that spent $25 million in the, in the proxy fight. I'm quite sure how a $200 million partnership does that. It may be that Chris James, the general partner, financed that campaign. Uh, <clears throat> um, in effect, what's happening is the major companies, the Exxon, Chevron, Shells, are committing themselves to these net zero campaigns so that uh, they will go into the power business rather than just being in the production business, kind of de-emphasize the production business. Uh, all these majors are in refining and chemicals, but they make two-thirds or more of their money upstream. Um, uh, the uh, Our business is tough. Uh, it's regulated. Um, uh, <clears throat> what are they going to do? I mean, try to copy Nextera. I mean, Nextera has regulated utilities, two of them, Florida Power and Light, and I think it's called Gulfport that uh, I bought um, in Florida. Um, they um, Florida has a very conservative governor. Uh, the PUC, the State Utility Commission, is appointed by the governor. Uh, Florida is a good place to be. Um, their business outside of Florida is all under contract. They're the largest owner of wind capacity. I think they're pretty close to being the largest owner of solar capacity. It's all under contract to utilities or other users. They don't do merchant. Uh, they've had a great record. They're clearly trading at too high value, I think, now. Um, the uh, CEO of uh, Nextera um, said this week uh, in a conference in public that he thinks these net zero commitments made by utilities by 2035 are irresponsible, uh, isn't going to happen. Um, he did speak positively about green hydrogen, uh, green hydrogen being used wind or solar electricity to uh, on water, produce hydrogen and, and uh, you know, without, without using any fossil fuels. Um, another very prominent person in the oil business, the Saudi oil minister, uh, right after this half an hour virtual uh, phone call, conference call amongst the OPEC countries plus Russia uh, was asked about an IEA report. IEA is kind of a consumer's version of OPEC. It's based in Paris. IEA report said it was very important to have a whole world be net zero carbon by 2050. Uh, the uh, old minister, who's half-brother to the crown prince, um, uh, <laughs> said that it was like a movie, like La La Land, he called it. 
Uh, he said uh, it's so off the mark that he's not paying it any attention. So uh, here you have the old minister and uh, <clears throat> backed up by a formidable bunch of economists and other analysts at OPEC employees. And you have the most successful uh, utility manager, I would say, in the U.S., maybe in the world, by in the U.S. by a wide margin, maybe in the world, uh, saying that these uh, zero carbon commitments being made by political speeches are just irresponsible. Um, what to think about what this does to the future price of oil? Uh, I think uh, Rosneft, Saudi Aramco will be under the same. I say Rosneft because they're half of the Russian oil business, and they're they're effectively state-owned by the by the government of Russia. Um, the uh, they uh, I think have the same capital constraints uh, to spend two-thirds of your cash flow and still have production growth or at least hold your production flat. It's extremely difficult to do, uh, even for the state-owned companies in Russia and Saudi Arabia and other parts of the Middle East, the Emirates and whatnot. Um, the, um, if the major companies, led by Shell and Total, the European companies, and including Exxon and Chevron, um, de-emphasize new oil projects? Could we have a situation where the price of oil is going down faster and the demand is, I mean, the supply of oil is going down faster than the demand? Could happen. Is it sustainable? I think whether it's sustainable or not depends on the take-up in um, electric cars, battery cars, and battery trucks. Um, hard to predict. Um, going to depend on what people want to do. Um, there'll be incentives. There are incentives, but you know, if if uh, we the people on the phone and our families prefer to use gas power, diesel power, maybe have an electric car to run for groceries and whatnot. Um, you know, gasoline and diesel demand on a worldwide basis will hang in there. And maybe some of the people who think $68 WTI will turn into a much higher number uh, have a case. Personally, I don't think it's a case you can invest on. Um, I think that uh, you don't want to own upstream companies that can't achieve those objectives. Have the debt be less than one times cash flow, spending two-thirds of the cash flow, have some production growth. So those are the ones you want to own. Um, spend a little more time on energy and uh, and uh, the normal. Just want to make a comment on inflation and uh, cryptocurrencies as a ha haven for inflation, uh, against inflation. Um, clearly, the borrowing going on by our government, by governments worldwide, uh, quantitative easing, whatever you want, is not sustainable. Um, that it results in inflation seems logical because uh, the central banks, whether it's the Fed or Japanese central banks or, or China or 
or the European Union tend to, by buying bonds, by doing quantitative easing, monetize the deficit. It's not necessarily the case that we're going to come up with wholesale and consumer price inflation from doing that. The other thing that can happen is a uh, a a, um, a readjustment where government spending has to has to be brought down uh, because um, a government is no different than a household or a company. It can't overspend its cash flow without consequences, and uh, so this idea that um, we need to invest in things that will protect against inflation, uh, even though since the 08, 09 Great Recession, we haven't really had any inflation. I mean, the Federal Reserve and other central banks have had as a goal that 2% inflation, and they haven't been able to do it. Um, I think it's better to have companies that generate more cash than they need and which grow. Uh, spending, you know, now what kinds of companies are those? A lot of the well-established tech businesses, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, um, Facebook, all do that. Um, I, I just spoke about the only upstream companies you want are ones who can do that and compete, you know, from a cash flow point of view with that. Uh, and uh, I think that's a protection if you're worried about inflation. Now, we may not have had inflation of um, uh, prices for, you know, con consumer prices or wholesale prices, but count on it. We have had inflation of asset values. The stock market would not be as high as it is now if, if long-term interest rates were more normalized. Uh, if the U.S. Treasury is 35 or 4%, uh, up from 1.6 or 7%, uh, 1.7%, would that be a bias towards lower stock prices? Absolutely. Count on it. Um, <clears throat> will that happen? Probably. Well, it has happened. I mean, the 10-year rate last August was like 60 basis points. Now, now it's 1.65 or something. So it has happened. Will it go up another 100 basis points or 150 basis points? Probably. It's just a question of timing. Will the Fed Reserve start to stop buying $125 billion a month of uh, treasuries and mortgage bonds? Remember, Jerome Powell, the chairman, famously said, we're not even talking about talking about it. But I don't think he'd make that statement today because he isn't the sole decision maker. He has to deal with the Federal Reserve Board uh, who are independently uh, determined by the different Federal Reserve banks. So um, if they have one or two more good employment reports and clearly <clears throat> things are kind of overheating or potentially overheating, expect them to say initially they're going to stop buying mortgage bonds because, I mean, the the wholesale, the, the residential construction market is hot as a pistol. Um, it doesn't really need that support. So 
uh, that'll be the first move. So that they'll be down to just buying like 80 billion a month of U.S. Treasuries, and then I would think a few months later they'd stop doing that, and then eventually they'd say they're not going to invest the coupons and the maturities. And so the $7.5 trillion um, U.S. Uh, federal bank, U.S. the Fed's balance sheet will start down at some point. I'd be amazed if mm-hmm. it hasn't started down by the beginning of next year. Um is that a, a reason to sell stocks or hold very high cash positions? I don't think so. I think you have to just keep looking for things that you want to own over four or five years or more. And um, <clears throat> if you feel like they're too high, buy a part position. If things come down, you can fill out the position. And with that, I've chewed through 20 of our 30 minutes. Uh, Mike and I said, and we have spent time on payments companies. Um, I'm going to, with the remaining three minutes I'm allocating myself, I'm going to say they make me nervous. I don't think I want to own them. Um, they're all pretty high priced, and I'm talking about, you know, Visa, MasterCard, Snap, um, uh, PayPal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, however, uh, um, uh, with that, uh, get some uh, get some commentary for Mike since I've hogged twenty of our thirty minutes. So over to you, Mike. No problem. Sounds sounds good, Hunt. Um, so, in looking at the 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 digital payments market, I think it's important to try to wrap a framework around what's happening. Um, within the space, and it's really the space of, of banking. Um, and if you're familiar with Clayton Christensen, um, he's a pretty famous, uh, recently passed uh, Harvard Business School professor, uh, author of The Innovators Dilemma, and uh, quite a bit of research. Just going over how he describes disruptive innovation, and then just touch quickly on the, uh, the different companies we mentioned and what they're doing. In general, though, I want to reiterate that I, I agree with Hunt. Valuations, pretty much all innovative, sort of stretched through the um, through the last, you know, and uh, it makes it a little bit harder to enter um, one of these investments. It may not be a case to sell any of them, but it does make it much more challenging to enter. Um, so when we think about disruptive innovation, it's a it's a process where a smaller company resources established incumbent. Uh, typically, incumbents end up focusing their development of products or services on their most profitable customers. So that typically is the high end of a market. So entrants tend to be successful by targeting the overlooked segments that the incumbents aren't focused on. Um, the entrants, once they establish uh, a beachhead market, are able to move and expand expand their market. So, it, you know, in the context of peer-to-peer payments, initially PayPal and Venmo, um, they 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 started working where uh, where the incumbents, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and all the other big banks weren't focusing. So, if you think about what was happening, even just post-financial crisis. 
sheets were in all sorts of trouble. The balance sheets were all um, a, a mess. They started imposing fees on um, bank accounts. If you didn't have enough assets, they wanted to charge you 10 bucks a month in order to have a bank account. So what happened? We ended up with a large population of people that decided not to have bank accounts. So they were operating with cash or PayPal, Venmo, um, and whatever other digital uh, cash solutions were available at the time. They, they called them the, the unbanked population. Um, and it's not that they weren't banked, it's just they weren't using the traditional systems that were afforded to them. So PayPal and Venmo, Venmo is acquired by PayPal, um, Square with the Cash app, um, all serviced this segment that was just peer-to-peer -peer sending money between each other. Um, and, you know, back as I, I just described, like they are the case in point of innovators coming in, finding a market that's unserved by the incumbents and providing a solution without all the bells and whistles uh, that, you know, where, where JP Morgan is going to be more focused on private wealth and private banking. Um, they didn't provide they didn't, these, most of these people didn't need those solutions. They just want to be able to send cash to their friends to split the, the restaurant bill. Um, so, so it was a completely different focus. Now what's happening is we're seeing uh, Square and the Cash App uh, open up a brokerage arm. So if you have the Cash App, you can buy stocks. They're also moving into cryptocurrency. Both, both PayPal and, um, and Square offer cryptocurrency. Um, and the same things happened in the um, in the B2B space. So Bill.com in a different set uh, came up with a, a, a system that targeted small and medium businesses for companies that either didn't have accounts payable departments and make accounts receivable departments or sought to make those uh, departments more efficient. Again, this is just pulling more business away from the big banks. And now today, if you look at the banks, they're least profitable. And JP Morgan's um, um, 10K is worth reading because you realize very, very quickly their least profitable part of the bank is their consumer, consumer and business banking division. Um, so uh, I, I think there's no, no, no need to go further into this, but I, it, it's something to be aware of and it's something to uh, keep keep uh, your sights on the way new companies are uh, attracting the market. Yeah, I'd like to now migrate over to something uh, uh, that came up uh, while we're looking at these different uh, payment systems and whether or not they represent good stock equity investments. And that is... Uh, the hack that happened um, at Colonial. Um, the Colonial CEO, Colonial is owned by other oil companies, but it is very substantial. It, in terms of pipeline systems in the U.S. Uh, that are moving crude or natural gas or, in Colonial's case, gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel, very few have the heft or the overall scale of Colonial. Um, <clears throat> now, a couple of weeks has gone by. Basically, the the uh, my understanding is that the they became aware that they had a a uh, a problem and uh, uh, in that they were losing control 
over their payment system. Um, and when that happened, it's a company run by engineers, uh, as you'd expect. The engineers began to worry that if they lost control over the operating systems that move gasoline, you know, batches of gasoline, batches of diesel, batches of jet fuel, dump it off at different terminals and whatnot, they lost control of that. There could be leaks, uh, pipe pipes, uh, valves giving away, uh, fires, uh, just horrible things. So uh, I think within the first couple hours, they realized that uh, they had a, they'd been hacked on their accounting systems. They decided that the prudent thing to do was to shut everything down. To shut a system of that scale down is, um, you know, you don't do it in a couple of hours. It's 12 or 18 hours or 24 hours. And one of the things you have to do is you have to get every single person you can out to be physically present uh, where you have pump stations um, and and uh, uh, delivery points and injection points. And that's what they did. They literally had everyone who uh, could qualify out um, making sure that the shutdown worked. Uh, the implications to uh, motorists, uh, truckers, whatnot was significant. I mean, uh, one of our sailors uh, um, wasn't aware of the magnitude of it, was driving to Florida to pick up a trailer, got to Georgia, or got maybe he didn't even get to Georgia, was told by the people in Florida that he wouldn't be able to make it back. He wouldn't be able to get fuel, so he turned around and drove back to Oyster Bay. Um, so the implications were significant. The question I asked Mike earlier, and we'll finish up in the next two or three minutes, and maybe we can spend more time on this next Wednesday, is not to say that Colonial had the best systems uh, to try to keep um, uh, hackers from getting into their their um, their systems and and uh, and in effect asking for ransom. I think the ransom payment was not very much money, $4 million, but they did make the payments in Bitcoin. Um, how in the world, if your MasterCard, Visa, PayPal, uh, Snap, uh, JP Morgan, Citibank, how in the world do you keep from having that kind of thing happen to your systems? And, uh, you know, obviously, Again, I haven't looked at the J.P. Morgan 10K in a while, and I think I'll get myself a copy and look at it because I think they are our largest bank. But I suspect they spend hundreds of millions of dollars uh, trying to keep that from happening. But the people that do the hacking, whether they're from Russia or uh, or uh, North Korea or Iran or wherever they're from, um, uh, you know, making a business out of it. In other words. Uh, uh, compromising systems and then asking to be <clears throat> sent Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency and then turning 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 whatever back to you to get, gain control of your system. How how is it possible to keep these payment systems from from uh, that kind of uh, 
that kind of uh, um, security uh, breach. And with that, turn it over to Mike, and then we'll have Mike finish, and then uh, and then we'll uh, we'll we'll spend some more time on the subject next week. But over to you, Mike. Sure. So network security is changing very quickly. Um, what one of the things that and I think we'll probably wait till next further into detail here, but uh, build a, a, to, to do network security is to build barriers people from getting in. Um, and this is file, firewalls, physical servers, redundant systems. They, you, you set up your system so that people can't get in, but once you're inside, you're considered trusted. Um, and there's a new concept that uh, that is being propagated through through throughout called zero trust. And the basic assumption is that uh, if a dedicated or sophisticated hacker wants access to your systems, they will get them. And I think that these two um, pretty large public um, successful are this. And, and, and traditional networks is uh, it, it's hard for anybody to stay on top of it, but I'll tell you, like we've all we're all familiar with what a phishing uh, a, a phishing attempt is, but it, it it's it's hard, right? You think any company, all you got to do is find somebody, email with an with 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 a virus embedded into a file and just get them to click on it. Um, I, you know, I had a conversation with a friend of mine, former uh, former NSA. Uh, uh, we're talking about some of the tactics that people use. Um, one of them even is hackers will leave USB fobs in parking lots in hopes that employees of the organization will pick one up and plug it into their computer, um, thus compromising um, what's there. So, uh, you know, you think about something like, uh, They've got valves, right, that are controlled by computers, and there's probably a, a chip. Is there's a, probably a decent amount of public information about uh, what that system is? It's maybe it's a Texas Instrument uh, thing that's used for turning on and off a valve. Well, really crazy to think that a hacker could develop um, a hop through a network until it lands on that device and gain access and control of it. So um, I, the, the two things that I'll point out that, I, again, I think we can go deeper on this, that training is a good step in the right direction. And a second thing to point out is many, many companies have legacy software running on and that it's super vulnerable. Um, there are Fortune 500 companies that are running out-of-date software on out-of-date servers, and that is easy pickings for hackers. Just to finish up, um, we're, we're talking about hackers that you know come from overseas, um, but remember our own security agencies and and Department of Defense uh, use this type of thing against to achieve their own objectives. For example, I mean it was. A tribute to Israel, but it's hard to imagine that 
U.S. intelligence agencies or Department of Defense weren't involved. Uh, the uh, centrifuges used in Iran to uh, enrich uranium, uh, vast banks of them were, were rendered inoperable or destroyed by um, uh, some combination of us and the Israelis getting into their computer systems and causing them to run out of control. Um, and um, <clears throat> who knows what else uh, has gone on. Um, so um, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, uh, it's not just a good guys versus bad guys. Uh, the, um, the um, you know, our, our government, uh, we, we'd all feel as though our government wasn't doing the job unless uh, we had tools um, you know, equal to whatever uh, other governments, uh, you know, including out of the way kind of irresponsible governments like Korea and uh, North Korea and uh, Iran have. So um, my uh, one of the things I think we'll focus on next week is 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 one of the advantages that um, that Amazon, Microsoft. Google, Oracle, in other words, the people building cloud businesses uh, is one of the ways to <clears throat> be more secure, uh, run, run, have your own servers, use servers provided by these people uh, under the theory that you've got such a concentration of, uh, of uh, capability, server capability, that that may be the most efficient way to, to uh, try to be as secure as possible. But with that, we wish everyone good health, and uh, and then uh, we'll, Mike and I will be back on 3.30 next Wednesday. Take care, everyone. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.